0: You're listening to FMGradio.com. Welcome to Generation Reinvention, how baby boomers are changing the future, with your host, Brent Green.
1: Helen Dennis calls upon boomer and older women to shape a new kind of retirement, one that she refers to as Renewment to emphasize the possibility of positive change, enlightenment, and adventure. She believes that this is the time for today's career women who led the women's movement of the late 60s and 70s to create a new and empowering vision for their retirement years. During this program, we're going to speak with Helen about women, careers, retirement, ageism, and hopefully a bright future for the next generation of retirees. Helen is a nationally recognized leader on issues of aging, employment, and the new retirement. In the academic environment, she has received awards for her university teaching at the University of Southern California's Davis School at the Andrus Gerontology Center. Editor of two books, author of over 400 articles, and a frequent speaker— She is a weekly columnist on successful aging for seven Southern California newspapers, reaching 1.3 million readers plus online readers as well. In the area of retirement planning, Helen has assisted over 10,000 employees to prepare for the non financial aspects of their retirement. Her trainees include senior and corporate executives, mid level managers, factory workers, university faculty and staff physicians, engineers, and clergy. Helen's work, achievements, and contributions have been recognized with numerous awards. In her volunteer life, she is the past chair of five nonprofit organizations, including the American Society on Aging's Business Forum on Aging. Most recently, she is co author with Bernice Bratter of the Los Angeles Times bestseller entitled Project Renewment, the First Retirement Model for Career Women. So I would like to welcome to the show, and it's a pleasure to have her, Helen Dennis.
2: Well, thank you, Brent, and hello to you.
1: Hello to you. We have a lot to talk about today because your work has been expansive and you've worked in so many areas. In one of your speeches, which is something that you're going to be giving in the very near future. Your title is Eight Building Blocks for a Good Old Age. So can you give us an idea of what are the building blocks for a good old age, the way you see it?
2: Well, the way I see it is actually by looking at some of the literature, which hopefully uh, provides some substance and evidence for what we kind of know intuitively. And I'll just go over the eight points very quickly. Um, one is a sense of community, and that's really taken from uh, the project called the Blue Zones, which is a study of people who live the longest and healthiest lives in the world. And community <clears throat> was very important as part of their longevity, if you will. A second building block is physical activity. The third is mental activity. The fourth is having a more extroverted personality. Mm. Five is a positive attitude. Six is relationships. Seven is what we would call healthy nutrition. And eight is purpose. Now, we could talk at length on each one of these. But in taking in combination, I would say this increases the chances of living a what we would call good old age. Uh, I that's see. fulfilling, that's enriching. And these are some research based components of that building block aspect of a good old age.
1: Well, a couple of points there. First of all, I'm aware of the Blue Zone study, and that represents places around the world where it just seems that there are a lot of healthy old people successfully. Living and I'm not sure if I remember any of the specific locales. Uh, do you recall from your work where a blue zone, yes. is an example?
2: Well, one is Okinawa.
3: Okay. Hmm.
2: Um. Another is Loma Linda here in Southern California, which is very interesting. This is a. Um, uh, I can't remember. I think it's. It's not Latter Day Saints. It's a religious group that really honors family the Sabbath, spirituality, vegetarian diets, and it's interesting, Loma Linda is one of those. Um,
1: Is that the Quakers, or it's not the Mormons?
2: Quakers, Quakers Quakers are in Pennsylvania. Right. So Loma Linda was one. Um, Okay. There's also, uh, Sardinia was one. Uh, Those were three of them. Mm, Okay. And it's... um, it's a very very powerful when you compare the characteristics of these long lived healthy communities with you know, a lot of lot of the people living to be over a hundred. Um, their diet was essentially vegetarian, and what really struck me was connectedness, lifelong connections, and making time for those connections. Um, that. That to me was very powerful, so this whole sense of community is a very strong piece in having what we would call a good old age.
1: It seems like in the eight areas that you describe, one area that stands apart is social. in other words, social is part of some of the some of the building blocks uh, being connected with people
2: indeed, I mean that's very strong on relationships. And again, if you go back to the blue zones, these people are very well connected to family and close friends. Uh, and if you, you know, if you think about um, the model of successful aging, one of the very important pieces is, uh, is relationships. Well,
1: that kind of leads me to my next question. What does successful aging mean to you, Helen? What are the things that you hope to see as you continue aging?
2: Well, it, it, that's a large question, and it's, it's yes, actually it the title of, of, of a weekly column that I write. Um, and I can give you what, what I can consider uh, informally, and then there's lots of more formal definitions. But I think successful aging is making the most of what you have and living a life that enhances those characteristics, abilities, and opportunities. It, successful aging does not mean that you have no health issues, because few of us are going to get to reach reach an old, old age without something. So it doesn't mean that you must be in perfect health. Now, if you go to the book and study Successful Aging by John Rowe and Robert Kahn, you know, they followed about a thousand older adults over a number of years, and they looked at what they had in common, and they had three things in common. One was they eliminated risks for disability and disease. The second area is that they were intellectually and physically engaged. I mean, they exercised their mind and their bodies. And the third is what they called being engaged in productive behaviors. I translate that as meaningful behaviors. And part of that was a relationship, having some reciprocity, some give and take in a relationship. So we could say... Those are three areas of successful aging, but I want to really emphasize it doesn't mean perfect health. If you think of um, the physicist, it's—I slipped my mind—the physicist from Great Britain um, slipped my mind. But if, or if you can think of Mother Teresa, who, in her mid 80s, had a severe heart condition and was still serving serving the poor in Calcutta. Well, we could say she was aging successfully, but she had a major heart condition, but it did not stop her. She made the most of what she had. So that, that's a little bit on successful aging. I think in the future though, I think many people look at successful aging, meaning you have to live to a ripe old age. That's a chronological comment. That does not necessarily mean it's successful aging.
1: Truly, sometimes we see the idea of You have to be able to skydive out of an airplane at age 95 if you're going to be anywhere close to successfully aging, but we know that's not true, and as you have indicated, we've seen many wonderful models. In fact, my own uh, grandmother-in-law lived to the ripe old age of 104, and even in her final year when she was in a nursing care facility, she was robust, optimistic, optimistic. she, her face lit up. She appreciated the people that were caring for, and they in turn appreciated her. And certainly she had myriad physical limitations due to her advanced age. But I think I'd define her as successfully aging.
2: Sure. I mean, it's, we also we tell children, you know, be the best you can be. I think that's a philosophy for an entire lifetime. You know, use what you have and have a lifestyle which enhances your strengths and capabilities, both physically and mentally and spiritually.
1: Yeah, and that's wise thinking and something that our generations will need to be able to adapt to uh, because, of, you know, the high standards of media perfectionism, you know, the ideals put out there that if you're not, you know, this active, this robust, uh, climbing Everest in your 80s, uh, whatever, then somehow you're falling short of the mark and you're inadequate. And that's a problem.
2: It is a problem. And it almost gets to the point that we have standards which are appropriate for, let's say, middle-aged adults or younger adults. And we want to sustain those standards in old age. And if we don't, we feel we're we're coming short. So I agree with you, and what we kind of have to do is redefine, if you will, that particular life stage.
1: And that's a big part of your mission and your work, which I'm pleased to say we're going to be talking about quite a bit uh, throughout this program. Well, in kind of a more of an introductory way about your work, you've been very involved with employers that uh, are working with older employees, and this question of whether or not older employees are valuable contributors and are being helped to prepare uh, successfully for retirement and also avoid age discrimination within the company environment do you see a more of a growing interest among corporations to better engage and nurture an aging workforce let's say over the last few years
2: uh, that, the answer to that is it depends it Depends on the industry, depends on the economy. I mean, it's very interesting. Study after study indicates that managers really value the attributes of older workers, but that does not necessarily translate into behavior. Uh, but we see some trends which are promising. I mean, AERP has, oh, for about the past 10 years, had a national competition for employers to become one of the best employers for workers over 50. When that program started in, I think it was '01, there were probably 15 applicants and maybe 11 winners. I think last year there were 175 applicants, which suggests that employers think it's really important to be recognized as a good employer for workers over 50. And if you look at the winners from the past years, if you look at the industries that seem to be more represented than others, one is healthcare, care and the other is universities mm-hmm. or higher education. Sure. So I think a lot of this depends. A lot of this depends on on the industries that we talk about.
1: Yeah, and fortunately it does because I was thinking in the university environment, that is the one place within our society where aging has generally been embraced because you have your older professors, your professor emeritus, you have uh, the wisdom of older teachers being uh, admired and honored. And I guess that tradition continues. Um, In fact, I'm wondering if the rollback on uh, benefits for college professors and tenure as I'm hearing is starting to happen, if that's going to not bode so well for the aging professors that have traditionally been able to continue teaching as long as they were functionally able to do it?
2: Well, that's, that's, that's a possibility uh, that we may see a change.
3: Mm. But
2: I, going back to say, do we see a trend? I think very much depends on the economy. Yeah. I think we are currently in an and it depends on the industry. But we're currently in an environment where employers are looking to see can you do the job at the lowest possible expense to me. And if you can hire younger workers who can do the job perhaps just as well, um youth is an advantage. Mhm. Um and you know it's 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 really a dreadful problem because we now have people, I would say, a generation who has done everything right. You have saved, you've had a house, all of the American values. They've done everything right and get to the age of 64 or 65 and realize that their retirement, their retirement savings have taken a dive. And they need now to get back into the workplace. And it's very, very difficult. I see this in letters that I receive from my successful aging column that people are, they are losing their houses. And the overriding piece is the fear. How do I know that I'm going to have enough money? And, and so I think there's a really um, a crisis among many, I would say, midlife and older adults who are facing retirement with a big cloud over their head. Uh, because if they need to work, who is going to employ them, and can they get enough money to sustain their to sustain their mortgage payments or their their uh, obligations at this life stage? So I think there is a hardship on the employment side, on the, for the employees. Uh, for the employer, uh, it really depends on the industry. We have examples of employers that really value older employees. I mean, one that comes to mind is the aerospace industry here in El Segundo. They have something called casual workers. And at any time, they have about 250 people that they call back who are retired, and they will call them back on special projects. And we see this more and more, that a recall of retirees for special projects. But again, industry-specific. Um, healthcare is certainly one. Also, technology is one where, where <clears throat> employees are recalled. Mm-hmm. But overall, overall, I think it's a hard environment right now. For older individuals wanting to stay at work and also to find work uh, because of the economy, although the unemployment rates for older adults is lower than the national average national average is probably well good nine or ten percent if we don't include the discouraged worker um, or the ones that have dropped out or tired just tired of looking or, or underemployed we have now for the old for the for the older worker, it's about a 7% unemployment rate. But their opportunities are less. Their opportunities are less.
1: And particularly if you're one of those in that 7% who is looking for a job, then the prospects of starting fresh with a new employer don't look great.
2: They don't look great. And then there's the entrepreneurship movement. Right. You know, start a business for yourself. And so that, that's got a few legs, if you will. Um, but it's not a sure success. True. But it is an opportunity. Well, I guess, just to add, work is so central to the lives of Americans. I mean, it defines who you are. And to be unemployed is not only an economic crisis for many, but emotionally, it is, it takes away who you are. It, it Mm. says failure. Um, so, there is a tremendous emotional impact on people who want to work and are able to work and can't get a job.
1: That is definitely an issue that we need to talk about more and continue to address as we continue our conversation. And we're going to have to take a short break for our sponsors, but stick around because we're going to begin talking about. Helen's book, Project Renewment, and some of the things that she's been discovering about the possibilities for a new kind of retirement. Helen is an active and articulate leader, and she writes and speaks and consults on aging and generations, so it's really a privilege to have her with us today. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is Have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: One of the services that Helen, to organizations, companies, and to the cause of better opportunities and better rights for older workers, is to provide expert witness testimony for large class action and age discrimination lawsuits. And I have to ask, Helen, have you been involved in a lawsuit and provided expert testimony around the issues of age discrimination? Uh,
2: Yes, I have, Brent. Uh, But I have to say none of the cases went to trial, which is pretty typical. Usually these cases are settled before trial. But it's up until the last minute. Sure, um, And one of, the, one of the reasons is if it's a jury trial, the, the jury is usually made up of people who are, who are employees. And there's a strong tendency for jurors to side with the employee rather than the employer. So the, 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 the employers really try to settle. It might be 30 seconds before the trial, but they try to settle out of court, which is what they do.
1: Can you give us kind of a glimpse of what this expert testimony might look like? Because I think there are probably people listening to this program who have felt that they may have been discriminated against in by their age and lost their opportunity with an employer or they just seem, simply are not able to find work and they wonder if age discrimination is at work in terms of not getting interviews or called back for second interviews or whatever. And I, I'm kind of curious what uh, – What kind of questions, and what kind of issues get raised in this whole area of class action, age discrimination lawsuits?
2: Well, the piece that I get involved in is not really to determine has age discrimination occurred, but what I get involved in is something I call age stereotyping.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Was there an environment that seemed to stereotype older workers and did those stereotypes affect decisions? So that's that's the piece that I get involved in. Uh, I really can't tell on an individual case if someone was fired, uh, was it really performance or age, but if you look at lots of information, literally thousands of pages of performance evaluations, of memos, of meetings, um, of agendas, of reports, you can pick up certain aspects that you can say, this might lead to age stereotyping. And... And what I found from the literature that there are about six or eight kind of conditions which say this is a ripe environment for ageism or age stereotype, such as if that environment is very complex and ambiguous, um, if there's lack of performance information about an individual uh, if there's lack of an objective um rating uh, rating scales um and if the environment requires a cutback in number of employees like for downsizing so there's some environmental factors which would make the environment vulnerable shall we say mm-hmm. to age stereotyping so what i do is say let's see if we can describe the environment so that's kind of one stream and then the other stream is are there kind of spurious kind of age comments like uh, we need a lot of new young blood here or I think that she's just a little bit too old for retraining Mm. you see people just make kind of casual comments yeah and yet those comments um, or you know they call me a dinosaur Mm. Um, someone called me an old dog Um, older people don't get it they're not retrainable so if you look carefully and read carefully and start to compile the environmental aspect, and you compile some of these extraneous comments, and to me, it's putting together a, a mosaic, a puzzle, and say, to what extent does this environment lead to the, the high possibility, the low possibility that age discrimination could occur? So it's it's the environment and then the actual comments uh, from a lot of records. So Very that's, interesting.
3: That's,
1: well, you know, it's, it's something that I am sure we're going to hear a lot more about in terms of the future of work, given the growing number of people over the age of 50 and 60. And we certainly need people like you who are capable of going in and taking a look at a, the culture and the environment within an organization and make some assessment as to whether or not age unfriendliness tends to reign in the culture. And have you seen that in some of your expert testimony, where you were very clear that this organization tended to have an ageist mentality, even though it might not be overt?
2: Um, I have, and I, I I really phrase it that there's a high probability, right, that age stereotyping is part of this culture, right, and then support it with evidence, right. So again, I I you know I don't take the legal view saying age discrimination occurred, but the culture, the environment, there is some evidence that this was very ripe for age stereotyping, which in turn can very much influence decisions on promotion, on hiring. But I should add a couple of things. Most of the cases involve either if there's at least the large class action suits, if there's been a merger or acquisition and some people had to be let go, or if there's downsizing and a group had to be let go. It's much more difficult to talk about age discrimination to pin it down when it comes to hiring.
1: Oh, how I know. Can you,
2: how can you really tell if you don't get called back for an interview? What evidence do you have that it was because of your age? And it might have been, but how do you how do you just how do you find the evidence for that? So that's very complicated.
1: Very complicated and unfortunate for those who feel that maybe they just don't ever get any callbacks because they're resume goes back to 1975 uh, but there that is a problem and it's going to be one that it's as you say very complicated to try to address for the individual but let's transition now because there's much more to talk about in terms of the brighter side of the future of our aging workforce as well as the retirement that might be forthcoming for some of us And I'm going to kind of quote what you wrote in your book, Project Renewment. Boomer women, and I quote, are the first generation to live before and after the launch of the women's movement, and they are the first and the largest generation of women to define themselves by their work. They have few, if any, models for retirement. So how does the women's movement play into your assumptions and expectations about retirement becoming renewment?
2: Well, first of all, renewment is a word we made up, and it's a cross between retirement and renewal. If we go back to the women's movement, when Betty Frieden did her research throughout the country, one of the phrases that she uses in her book, um, The Feminine Mystique, is the woman said, is this all there is? I mean, mean, I've, I've gone to school, I've gone to Smith, I've gone to Wellesley, I'm educated, now I have three children, I wash dishes, and I do carpool. Is this all there is? well, these women went on to create additional lives, but now these women are in their 60s and 70s. And they are educated, they've had a career, they've had a family, they contribute to the community, and now they face 30 years ahead of them. And they say the same quest- ask the same question. Is this all there is? So essentially, Project Renewment, at least initially, is part of the maturing of the women's movement. And because... This is the first time in history we've had so many women with education and careers and identifying themselves with those careers. Whom do they look to as role models? They're not a lot. So they have to develop their own model. And We could say, well, the male model is just the same. And I'd like to suggest there are many similar characteristics, but women's work careers are very different from men's. They're, They're much less linear. And so women have to really look at – they are the model. These women now are the model for the next generation.
1: That leads me to the question that there will be new models for retirement, and we can call that renewment. So what models appeal to you? What have you seen? What person or what kind or style of retirement – that you really feel speaks to this uh, concept of renewment. You don't have to be personified by the name of a person or something like that, but I kind of want to get at what you mean by a new model.
2: I think what, and the women have all done many different things, but I think the one, the, the, the continuum which strikes me, is continued growth and development and not being satisfied with the status quo on a personal level. And that, I think, has been translated to women who, example, a woman who was a parole officer, took some acting classes, and now she's acting in Santa Monica. Uh, An executive director had always been interested in anthropology and art, and she is now a very well-established photographer. Um, Another Mm -hmm. woman who was an ombudsman also became a photographer. So, and it, the success does not mean that you've defined a new career or new role. The success means that you're on the path of continued growth, exploration, curiosity, and it may be a dose at the museum. It may be you become you find a passion for gardening, but it is really expressing what finding that passion at this life stage. Mm-hmm. I have to say. In the 60s and 70s, we didn't even use the word passion. I mean, what was that about? Passion, you know, find your passion. That's relatively new, but this generation of women have said, I relate to this, and I will seek and find what really excites me. And it is not instead of your relationships with your family, but this is in addition to in addition to what we would call a traditional retirement, which is leisure and family and freedom and options. But this is another driver. This is what makes a day great. This hmm. is a great reason to get up in the morning. Um, so it's a different driver.
1: I see. Well, what programs and services and or networks do you believe need to be developed more fully uh, around retirement and women? What What is out there now but what needs to be out there that isn't
2: well it's interesting i think that the development of a couple of organizations is a uh, a commentary on what women want and need in new york you have the transition network which is a national membership organization uh for it's typically women who are educated with careers and they have networks they have conferences they have established something called a caring community it 's a very comprehensive organization and a membership organization in Southern California you have um, uh, the organization launched by Jane Glenn Haas and i'm blocking on the name i 'll think of it in a moment
1: women's sage
2: women's sage thank you uh, again <laughs> I spoke is, for a few you. years ago <laughs> um, and again this is for women and they have a slightly different approach the They do a lot of seminars, career makeovers, uh, uh, cruises for respite care for caregivers. Uh, So they they also are geared towards helping women re-career and reinvent themselves. And that's a membership organization. So Project Renewment is not a membership organization. It's a movement. It is viral. And we have probably 25 groups throughout the country who are meeting maybe 8 to 10 women who meet maybe monthly or every other month to talk about issues facing them in the future, whether it's productivity, uh, who am I without my business card, um, uh, I'd, I'd rather have a sorority house than a nursing home, you talk about housing, long-term care, and so that's more of a movement, and I say it's viral. Hmm. So, but I think this, the three examples which I've just shared with you is a commentary That women, I think, are communal, and when they see the need, they will form something that addresses what's important to them, and they talk. I mean, this is a generalization. I don't mean men don't talk, but women (laughs) talk about – because that's one of the differences. People have asked me, so why didn't you start a group for men? And My answer is there probably are some men's groups that are probably forming, but women go about this differently. They talk, and they get to the issues pretty quickly. And I would say men stereotypically might talk about the geopolitical environment and economics, um, the stratosphere, and it may take them a little longer to get to things that are more personal. You left out Broncos. You left out Broncos. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say you left out Broncos football.
2: Okay, I forgot football. I I have to protect (laughs) myself because it's a sexist comment. (laughs) <laughs> and there are exceptions, but I have to say in working with 10,000 employees, men and women respond to topics very differently in how they articulate or don't.
1: Uh-huh. Well, and I agree. And when we come back, I want to talk a lot more about Project Renewment and the book itself and find out more ideas about your thoughts uh, of what people can do differently than what they are. And I might even ask you for some advice about what we men can do. So stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Be sure to join us at FMGUniversity.com. That's where we can turn your passion into business within 30 days, put some fun back into your life, show you how to make money, and do good for yourself and others. That's why we are called FMG, Fun, Money, Good. Get started today. Go to FMGUniversity.com.
1: I'm going to quote, Project Renewment is a terrific book. It's cutting-edge approach, to retirement for a new generation of career women is based on sound knowledge, a depth of experience, and the rich dialogues of highly effective women creating their future. It's also a great read, fun, informative, and hopeful. I was particularly drawn to the essays through the creative illustrations, timely topics, and clear writing. And that quote comes from Dr. Ken Dyckwald, who is the founder and CEO, age wife that's a terrific acknowledgement from Ken
2: that was very nice.
1: <laughs> we both like and know Ken quite well he's, he's a very influential individual in our in our industry, and I'm honored that he'll be coming on the program as you have in a few weeks so we will we'll go back and discuss this a little bit then so let me ask you now um, I am question questioning one thing that Boomer and silent generation women, particularly the the late stage of the silent generation, let's say those born between 1937-ish and 1945, and then boomer women born between 1946 and 1964, are different in their ways of accessing and mobilizing social networks today. Um, are they that much different than their mother's generation, do you think? And is that difference important?
2: In terms of social networking or in right. general?
1: Right. Social networking. And I don't mean online social networking like Twittering and linking in. I just mean coming together and focusing on these larger issues like we were discussing with Jane Glenn Hawes' Women's Sage. Do you feel that this group of women who really did come of age during the women's movement are somewhat different in the way they approach uh, mobilizing and getting involved together?
2: I think it's more formal. I think different in terms of how are they different from their parents, I think the um, if you will, the the leading edge boomers um, and the younger side of the silent generation are a, a little bit more formal in getting organized. Mm-hmm. I mean what what typically could have been discussed um, when you get together for coffee or or going out to lunch? now has a more formal aspect to it. And, and it could be because we are mission-driven, we're looking at purpose, we have more organizational skills. But I think the formality is, is different, and I think the intention of building something enduring is different. And I think the third difference is building something not only for yourself, but for other women. Because I know in Project Renewment, one of the one of the goals was to generate a body of knowledge, not only to serve ourselves, but hopefully to contribute to others. And I think that's a little bit different.
1: So there, you know, I associate with the women's movement, which I came of age in, um, a very spirited activism. Are you seeing a spirited activism? And I don't mean just... I guess, self-fulfilling groups, in other words, where we come together to talk about our mutual interests, needs and, you know, vision together our future, perhaps in retirement, but where we actually mobilize to go out and change some of the problems that you and I've been discussing earlier in our conversation, such as ageism, such as uh, age discrimination, age stereotyping, and things like that. Are you going to see that coming forward, or do you already see it coming forward in some of this uh, mobilization of boomer and silent generation women around envisioning a new a retirement or a renewment?
2: Well, there's probably two aspects to that. One is that people are doing a lot of this for their own personal growth and development. But I don't see, I don't see people taking to the streets. <laughs> but you do have, <laughs> as we did in the 60s, right. um, but I think we have advocacy organizations. Um, for financial security. We have uh, uh, the Wiser Foundation. We have, we have organizations, particularly in Washington and other places, that are looking for um, advocacy and lobbying for economic security for women, which is terribly important to talk about poverty and old age. Essentially, it's a woman's issue. So I think that the pressures are coming along in traditional ways, Nonprofit organizations, AERP and their lobbying efforts and impact on the hill, but i don 't see what I call moral outrage like, I you... will not tolerate this one more moment i don 't see moral outrage, but I think that 's endemic for society as a whole, so i wouldn't only you know tag that on to women in mid to later life.
3: Are you disappointed no
2: Yes, I, I think I am because we, what can, I, what can I say? We were reluctant. We're reluctant to be outrageous <laughs> for a cause.
1: And do you see any possibility that might change? Because I kind of share your disappointment. I, I'm not expecting us to, you know, attack the college campuses in mass and you know dust off our protest signs but I am a little discouraged that there isn't as much uh, shared um, moral concern about society fully embracing the facts of its aging and and making more room and honoring the full the full life circle so I share your concern do you are you optimistic that maybe something will happen
2: I'm not sure. I think Roe versus Wade, an overturning of Roe versus Wade, will create an outrage. That's not particularly, you know, midlife and older women, but I think midlife and older women would march for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what would have to happen um, short of a draft, a military draft for midlife women <laughs> that, would, um, that would create... Um, the strength, if you will, the the, the public pressure, the demand uh, for social change. So I I'm trying to envision what would what would initiate this, what would motivate it, and I I don't see it. I think we've become um, impotent is not the word because we're not, but we have a different way of thinking about change, and maybe if we think about change in our own community, our own little rice paddy, and have not undertaken national change.
3: Hmm.
1: Well, given that fact, I mean, and I agree with that assessment, you do have one mechanism in place that you are offering women, and that's called a Renewment Group. So what is it, and how can women who are listening to this program consider forming one?
2: Um, Well, actually, the... Our book, in the last section of the book, it's essentially a turnkey operation. We we provide a guide. My co-author and I decided we would not feel like running around the country forming groups. So what can <laughs> we write that will enable people to just do it themselves? And we can you can call us, write to us, we'll help. So if the book tells you how to form a group, You know how to look for people who are like-minded. Uh, that we have an outline of topics you can address, the questions you can address. It's almost like a curriculum. It essentially is a curriculum. And the other thing is we have a website, which is www.projectrenewment.com, where we have lists of questions and discussion topics, tips for running a successful group, that we have provided the resources for people to create a group. And I'd like to add what has happened, and this is called Unintentional Consequences, we have formed small, enduring groups that now have lasted 10 and 11 years because we started this in 1999, very quietly, and they've lasted. So we have formed small communities around the country of these women. And the topics they talk about, and we can talk about that today, are different, a little different than topics they talked about eight and nine years ago because now everyone is eight to ten years older. Um, Sure. So, so I guess my comment is we have now these small groups, and again, that's a form of community, and we're really – we're happy about that.
1: Well, again, I think that would be a good recommendation for people to pick up your book, read it, and understand how to produce a locally active renewment group, which could be one of the best steps that our women listeners can take to um, – I've again, developed the social network around the experiment of a new life stage and what comes after the traditional career. We'll continue our conversation with Helen Dennis, where we're going to talk about the future as we do with every one of these shows, not just next year or five years from now, but way into the future, where many more women than men will be looking at how are we going to live. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to the FMG Radio Network where our motto is, Have Fun, Make Money, Do Good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: When we talk about the future, Helen, one of the things that I think we all think about is will members of the younger part of the silent generation and the leading-edge baby boomer women experience old age differently than did their mothers? What are your thoughts about those possibilities?
2: Well, I think the answer is yes, Um, and this actually applies to both men and women. I think the expectations for later life are much higher than they were for previous generations in that I think women and I would include men in this Brent um, are still looking for peak experiences uh, less satisfied with business as usual so I think and if we talk about women in particular I think the expectations are high to continue feeling worthwhile, vibrant um, significant, making a difference so I think that their motivations are a little bit different. Uh Uh, That's one. The other is, you know, with the longevity revolution and the boom generation, um, they're going to live longer. And if all goes well, they should live a healthier life, a longer life, and hopefully one that is healthier, that is more vital. And I think that's going to be a difference. So we combine expectations with having the physical and mental capabilities to do what's important to you, um, I think that 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 is a difference.
1: Well, What about the actual social experience of old age? Because we often associate the, uh, we can call them stereotypes, but images of the old, old, uh, again, perhaps not necessarily the bedridden, but, you know, we talk about uh, playing bingo and... Um, kind of being isolated from the rest of the community, maybe playing shuffleboard, and maybe going off on uh, cruises that, you know, are totally populated by people with gray hair. Is the social aspect of old age going to change in your judgment?
2: I think for some people it will. Uh, I think there are some who will continue what we would call a more traditional retirement. But I think there will be a growing number that will want to do this differently, that assisted living, traditional assisted living may not appeal to them. Co-housing, living with people who you want to live in an environment that you create, may be far more appealing. Um, I think that this generation, and we're speaking of women now, assuming they are going to live longer, are looking for new ways to grow old, new environments, and to be socially connected. And as a society... We have a lot more that we need to do to keep the older old connected in a way that's meaningful, and that is transportation systems and it not everyone is going to afford or be able or want to go to something which we now call long term care or skilled nursing or uh, re- retirement residences for some that's going to be okay, but there's going to be a group that says that's not where I want to go. you know I want a destination place, and uh, you've probably heard about cruise ships that are less expensive and more comfortable than other kind of retirement residences um, that provides your luxuries, your interest, your travel, um, and living a life on a cruise ship might be appealing.
1: That definitely sounds better.
2: But I think we're going to see things different. Uh, This is not a generation that wants to settle. And I think it's a generation that's going to create new things new language, new ways of living. Um, and if it's not here, they'll, they'll make it happen.
1: Right. Well, do you think there will be something you spoke of, the traditional assisted living, the traditional uh, retirement residence? What about a renouement residence? Do you see those well, forthcoming?
2: Actually, actually, in our book, we, with a smile on our face, said, well, what about renouement residences where we pull – all of our technology, all of our books. We live in kind of a co-housing environment. We have not a driver, but a chauffeur. We don't have a cook, but we really have a chef. Uh, We have lectures that come to us um, that maybe we create something that you have a renewment group which now morphs into a retirement residence. It's possible.
1: Hmm. We spoke offline a little bit about Susan Jacoby, who's written a book that really tries to, uh, I guess you could say, address this halcyon image of the future that a lot of anti-aging marketers would like us to believe in. And, And then again, I guess you would call it the organic hopefulness within our generation that we're going to be vital and active until the last month of our lives. We all would like to compress morbidity to whatever extent we could. But um, how do you reconcile kind of those opposing views where there might be a a utopian opportunity out there that we boomers and members of the silent generation are going to create? And then Susan Jacoby's kind of views, and I don't mean to limit it to that, but she's kind of on the pessimistic side. We're not going to see anything much better than the old, old of our current generations are seeing. How do you reconcile that?
2: Yes, well Susan Jacoby has suggested we we've been sold the bill of goods. Yeah. Um and I think her book at least is is provocative because the reality is old age, old, old age cannot sometimes is not a very good experience. And to believe that we are going to be vibrant and absolutely fabulous until we drop dead on the tennis court or the dance floor may not be realistic. And it isn't realistic. Um, and I think the most we can do is to try to plan for that part of our life and do everything that we can in our lifestyle to decrease that morbidity time so that we are vital and hopefully 20 minutes later we exit from the planet. But I think she, she does a little bit of a reality check. I think that uh, she's a little more pessimistic than I would be. Because we do have movements and efforts now to create a better, longer life. And that needs to be acknowledged and recognized and embraced. So I think she has a point, um, but, the, but the most we can do is try to prepare for the end, an end of life's peace. That's part of the preparation, both in practical terms and in emotional and spiritual terms.
1: Right. And uh, again, a lot of effort is being undertaken to look at that, for example, from the hospice side. I've had an opportunity to speak to the hospice organizations on a number of occasions, and they are clearly presenting an alternative pathway to our final exit that involves um, more of a peaceful spiritual environment, less connected to technology and so forth. And, you know, when I started looking at the hospice movement, Helen, and I started looking at who are the leaders in that movement, guess what? They are members of the late silent generation and the leading edge boomers who have really caused this movement to take hold like it has. Um, so things happen. And that's what I mentioned to Susan Jacoby in an email is that, yes, you have a point that there, you know, there's a tendency to over-idealize what we can make of the oldest years of our lives. But on the other hand, I'm not seeing that you're giving full credit to the the generations that are coming into that old old life stage that they will, from a community standpoint, be determined to make it better.
2: yeah, I fully agree with you. Um, we don't have all the answers, and you know a prolonged death is horrific um, I'm not sure what we do about that, but hospice has certainly has certainly played a major role in compassionate care and I think that's a very hopeful movement that I hope will be more nationally accepted.
1: I think that's the way it's going. Yes, I think that's the way it's going. Well, as usual, we do not have enough time, even in an hour, to talk about all the things that I would like to talk about, Helen, but I certainly thank you for joining the show today and sharing your wisdom and your enormous experience and I encourage our listeners to Look up Helen. In other words, you can go to her website at HelenMDennis.com, which can be a gateway to everything else. And if you want to go directly to her book, it's ProjectRenewment.com. And read her articles. If you're not in the subscriber area for her successful aging column, then you can certainly look at a lot of the articles online. But again, Helen, thank you so much for spending the time. And I wish we had more time.
2: Thank you, Brent. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and uh, your excellent questions, and it has been a pleasure.
1: Well, I hope we can get you back again in the future because we can continue this conversation and dive into other areas that I had planned on talking about but unfortunately did not have time to cover. It's a deal. All right. Well, as always, I want to thank our listeners for joining the show. Uh, You may post your comments and questions on my Facebook page, which you can find at facebookcom Brent Green Denver. Or if you're a Twitterer, you can follow me and send direct messages on Twitter at Boomer Marketing. And then my blog, which is now in its sixth year, which is ancient, I guess, and this blogs go presents a continuing conversation about the boomer future, which we've talked about today. And you can find that at boomers.typad.com. So tell your friends and colleagues and clients about a worldwide revolution discussed here weekly called Generation Reinvention.
0: You've been listening to Generation Reinvention with your host, Brent Green. Visit Brent at his website at generationreinvention.com. And for archive shows be sure to visit his show page here on the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is, have fun, make money.